go to www.morganorchards.com. The mountains are calling. For more information, visit morganorchards.com. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. What an exceptional day today. Thanks for spending part of it with us. What a great week. Thanks for uh, joining us on the program this morning. we got a full lineup for you. Coming up in hour number two, we'll check in with our White House crew, who've been, uh, I think, quite helpful this week in sorting through the whole Iranian deal. We'll also talk about what's going on in Greece with them as well. And, of course, some presidential politics. We'll take your phone calls throughout the program. You can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And toll-free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. Coming up in our second hour, we'll also talk with the biographer of a new book out about Stalin's daughter. A, uh, an incredible life, uh, which included her defecting to the United States. And uh, coming up this hour, in just a moment here, we'll kick off a discussion about genetically modified organisms. Again, our numbers on the program, love to hear from you, 244-1777 is our local number. And toll-free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. Let's give a nice warm radio from out. Welcome this morning to Stephen Drucker. He is the author of Alter Genes, Twisted Truth. How the venture to genetically engineer our food has subverted science, corrupted government, and systematically deceived the public. Mr. Drucker is a public interest attorney. He's the executive director of the Alliance for Biointegrity. And he filed a lawsuit against the FDA back in the late 1990s that uh, got them to expose quite a bit of information, which he has included in his book. Mr. Drucker, thank you very much for joining us. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for having me as a guest. How'd you get on to uh, filing this lawsuit? Well, I became concerned about the uh, great gap between the promotional claims about genetically engineered foods and the realities. And the more I learned, the more I became concerned. And uh, I was especially concerned about the policy of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, because the FDA is supposed to be upholding the law and safeguarding the integrity and safety of our food supply. But when it comes to genetically engineered foods, the FDA had adopted at White House urging, beginning in the Reagan administration, a policy to promote them. And it admits that it has a promotional policy. It's very difficult for any regulatory body to both promote a technology and responsibly regulate it. What were the claims that were being made that made you suspicious? Well, the FDA in particular had claimed that there was an overwhelming consensus within the scientific community that genetically engineered foods are so safe they don't need to be tested. I knew that wasn't true. I knew that there were many well-qualified scientists who did not regard them as uh, as uh, as safe as conventional foods and felt that they had to be tested. Uh, and I also felt the uh, it seemed that somewhere the FDA was violating the law. Uh, as I did more research, that hunch was confirmed. But it seemed to me that a lawsuit should be brought against the FDA uh, challenging their uh, presumption that these foods are generally recognized as safe. And uh, what I didn't realize was that the FDA's own scientists agreed with the many scientists uh, who didn't regard them as safe. That only became clear after the suit was filed and the FDA was forced during discovery to hand over more than 44,000 pages of its internal documents. And I found memo after memo from the scientists on the FDA's own biotechnology task force who were uh, analyzing the issue, warning their superiors that genetic engineering is distinctly different than conventional breeding, that it entails a different set of risks, that its products cannot be presumed safe, that each one of them needs to be carefully tested before it is allowed on the market. By the way, that's what the law requires anyway. So what the FDA scientists were saying was merely what the law requires is also sound from a scientific standpoint. 
the, the science requires what the law requires. Unfortunately, the FDA administrators didn't like to hear that. They covered it all up, and they lied. They said they weren't aware of any information showing that foods produced by these new technologies differ from any differ in any meaningful or uniform way from other foods. So that's an outright lie. Their files contained a lot of information, and it's posted on our website, by the way, 24 key documents from the FDA files at biointegrity.org, www.biointegrity.org. How, how, so, uh, how is the FDA able to keep these scientists quiet? Well, uh, basically, I think they would have been fired if they had spoken up. Uh, when when uh, reporters tried to contact them, uh, they were never allowed to talk with the scientists directly. They were always put in touch with an FDA spin doctor, uh, a public sp a spokesperson who was not one of those scientists. And, uh, you know, the scientists at the FDA are, are pretty much hamstrung because, the, uh, as I mentioned, the, the agency has official policy to promote these foods. Right. So it's very difficult for scientists to go up against it. Now, by the way, uh, in a few weeks, I'm speaking at the annual whistleblower summit in Washington, D.C. I'm basically invited to blow the whistle that the FDA scientists uh, were really restricted from doing in public, but I'll be giving voice to the memos that they wrote and uh, blowing the whistle on the FDA. Did the scientists conclude that GMOs, that they were not sure they were safe or that they were unsafe? They concluded that there was not adequate evidence at that time, and there certainly wasn't to conclude they were safe, and also that from what was known about genetic engineering, there were good reasons to, to regard these foods as entailing different risks. What they were saying is each one of them has to be carefully tested to determine whether it in fact is or isn't safe, that you cannot give a blanket uh, presumption of safety to all of GMOs. But that's what the FDA did. The FDA presumed that they're all safe and don't need to be tested. Mm -hmm. And if scientists were saying, you cannot do this as a matter of sound science, you cannot make such a presumption. And as a matter of law, that presumption violates the law because there are strict criteria for what can be regarded generally recognized as safe when it comes to food safety. And none of the genetically engineered foods met those criteria, and that's very clear. Were any tests done by manufacturers? Oh, yes. Most of the testing has been done at the, uh, under the supervision of the manufacturers. But at the point the FDA made its presumption of safety and said these foods could come to market, there hadn't been any, uh, any good safety testing at all at that point. And in fact, one of the FDA's uh, officials uh, admitted that they were asking their, uh, they were asking their scientists to uh, render a policy, make a policy on the basis of essentially no test evidence. Mm -hmm. what, what were you able to conclude? I mean, you talk about the, and, and I hear you that having a regulatory body also involved in promotional activity, an agency that does both, that's problematic. Was that the sole motivation for the FDA to give this the green light, or was something else going on? Well, the promotion was certainly big. I think we have to look at the promotion, the motivational factors behind the White House's promotional policy that was initially promulgated in 1986 when Ronald Reagan was president and has been maintained by every successive administration, Democrat as well as Republican. Uh, it's very interesting that the the man who founded the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, who directed it for many years, admitted uh, in an interview with the New York Times uh, that uh, the FDA and the other federal agencies did everything that the biotechnology asked them to do and told them to do. And he used that word. He said, and told them to do. So it's clear that Monsanto, DuPont, and the other biotech giants were not just asking the federal governmental agencies uh, to do certain things for them. They were telling them what to do. They were calling the shots. And the FDA's documents uh, actually uh, attest to how strongly the, uh, the agency was influenced, the industry and the industry preferences were, in were influenced, excuse me, influencing what was going on. 
and how the policy being crafted was basically meeting all of the demand, desires and demands of the agency. Mm-hmm. One very clear piece of evidence is that in the summer of 1991, when the uh, FDA's policy on genetically engineered foods was meeting resistance, uh, the proposed policy was meeting resistance with the scientific staff, the FDA created a new position, uh, uh, assistant um, assistant commissioner or deputy commissioner for policy. Uh, and that deputy commissioner, the main policy that deputy commissioner was going to be in charge of initially was the policy on genetically engineered foods. And the individual who was appointed to that very sensitive post was an attorney from a major Washington law firm that was representing Monsanto. So he comes in uh, and basically uh, in that position was apparently in, uh, uh, in able to put in place a policy that gave Monsanto everything it wanted. Subsequently, uh, he was hired directly by Monsanto to be vice president for public policy, head of their Washington office. Essentially, he became Monsanto's chief Washington lobbyist. Now, that is the revolving door operating in a very gross way, and that shows you the power that Monsanto had over the federal executive branch. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Stephen uh, Drucker. He's the author of Alter Genes, Twisted Truth. Why? So help me understand the timeline here. You you did this suit in the late 90s, and this book's coming out in 2015. Why the gap there? Oh, because I didn't think I would need to write a book. Uh, Basically, with the, the evidence that we pried out of the FDA's files, it was really an open and shut case that the FDA was lying, that the law was being broken, that the FDA's own scientists had stated that these foods can't be presumed safe, that they have to be uh, carefully tested. There was even a letter in the file uh, from the FDA's biotechnology coordinator to a Canadian health official acknowledging there was not a consensus about safety within the scientific community at large. Uh, so I thought all we need to do is get this information uh, out there, get it publicized, and uh, the whole venture is going to be radically changed. Certainly there will have to be labeling. Uh, people will know that the FDA side has expressed concerns. What I didn't understand was that the mainstream American media was not going to present the facts. In fact, I'm very glad that you're interviewing me today. But major newspapers were given this evidence, and they basically became part of the covered up, cover up. They shut it down. Even when the Washington, when a Washington Post reporter was doing uh, prepared an expose, uh, that was quashed by his editor. Could not get through. So uh, there was a media blackout. Actually, there's an entire chapter in my book titled "Malfunction right. of the American Mainstream Media." It, well, and. It, mm-hmm. Explain, what's the motivation of the media in this? Well, it's hard to know for sure. Obviously, many of the main uh, newspapers, uh, they get a substantial portion of their advertising from the food industry. So that's a conflict of interest. Uh, Also, of course, with so much of the consolidation of the media that has occurred over the last 20 years, many major corporations own uh, some of the big media, and those corporations themselves probably have one or another uh, interest in the biotechnology or the food industry. I haven't, my book doesn't try to unravel all of that. I can leave that to other people. But it definitely shows that the um, mainstream American media has been complicit in the cover up and the disinformation because they've had compelling, irrefutable uh, proof that these foods were not recognized as safe, that the FDA uh, was misrepresenting the truth and violating the law, and they chose not to report it. So it was only after many years of trying to get a breakthrough that I decided I did need to write a book. But my book is much bigger than just the FDA fraud. It demonstrates that actually the main frauds have been committed by uh, eminent members of the scientific establishment and many eminent scientific institutions. And without the misrepresentations of the scientific uh, establishment, the FDA's fraud could never have been perpetrated. The, uh, the misrepresentations that are dispensed by the biotech industry could never 
have gained traction. So that's why the subtitle of my book is How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public. Because without the subversion of science, the other uh, frauds could not have uh, occurred. And so a large part of my book discusses the uh, scientific frauds. And my book is much more than just the... Uh, uh, just a uh, documentation of the FDA fraud. Stephen Drucker is the author of Alter Genes, Twisted Truth. You can join us on the program at 244-1777 is our local number, toll-free 877-291-8255. What do we know today? Has anybody done really any independent testing? I mean, now that these products have been out in the mainstream for a while because it seems to me one of well maybe this is too long a question but it seems to me one of the problems with trying to do early testing is that these products need time in to be out there to be adequately tested to know what their long-term results are so do we know anything more today in 2015 than you knew when this suit was was brought oh we know a lot more mark uh, there have been several independently conducted tests most of which have returned very unsettling results. Uh, one of them was conducted in, in the United Kingdom uh, in uh, the late 90s. Uh, it was an extremely strong research design. It, it uh, had won out over about uh, 45 other entries in a, basically uh, a call for papers from the Scottish government. Uh, a very solid study, and it was on uh, genetically engineered potatoes. It showed very troubling results, statistically significant harm to the unfortunate laboratory animals that had to eat the foods. And, but unfortunately, when the results of that were announced, the, science, the lead scientist was attacked. He was put under a gag order. The government shut down the studies. Instead of finding out more, they actually wanted to shut it down because by then the U.K. government was promoting GMOs. Uh, and the scientific establishment has unfairly pilloried that research. But it's very strong. It got published in The Lancet, one of the premier scientific journals. There are other independently conducted tests on other genetically engineered foods that have returned equally unsettling results. They've also been viciously and unfairly attacked. But we know from extensive evidence and even the research that was conducted by the industry when independent scientists, and it was claimed to have demonstrated safety, when independent scientists actually review the data, they say, oh, if anything, this, uh, this raises problems. It certainly doesn't demonstrate safety. So we know that these foods should have never come to market as a matter of law, but they shouldn't be on the market either because of the the uh, test results that have been returned that cast doubt on the safety of the genetic engineering process itself. What, what, was, um, the, what was the harm that happened to the uh, laboratory animals with the potato? Well, the potato, there were, uh, I think, well over 30 statistically significant uh, problems. But some of the main ones and the ones that are highlighted in the uh, uh, study that uh, was published in The Lancet were... Uh, problems with uh, overgrowth of uh, tissue in the uh, intestinal tract, uh, which could be, could be, and I'm saying could be, a precursor to cancer. It's not known for sure, but the kinds of changes in the intestinal lining are troubling from the standpoint of experts and that they needed to be followed up upon. And of course, the follow-up couldn't be done because those potatoes were all destroyed. So further tests couldn't have been done, which certainly shows the commitment to science that the uh, UK government was uh, had, which was really not a commitment to science, so they would have done more tests. But uh, these were very troubling in the eyes of the experts, food safety experts that were conducting the tests and the experts who have looked at the uh, data uh, because they, as I said, they could have been a... Uh, indication that down the road serious problems, even more serious problems would develop if animals continue to eat those foods. Now, Mark, you mentioned in all the time these foods have been on the market, have there been long-term follow-ups? No, and that's been by design. They haven't been labeled, so epidemiological tests could not have been done. We don't know who's been ingesting genetically engineered foods and what quantity and what kinds of problems uh, they may have developed that are linked to these foods. Uh, it's different than the case of tobacco, 
where we knew who was smoking for how long and how many packs a day. And even with that, consider how many years it took before there was finally enough evidence for the Surgeon General in the mid-1960s to declare that there was a link between smoking and lung cancer and to require warning labels. I mean, people have been smoking for hundreds of years. So uh, in the case of GMOs, experts in epidemiology say it would probably be virtually impossible to ever link a particular harm with a particular GMO food. We don't know. And if if a GMO, one or another GMOs, is, is causing an increase in cancer, or colitis or any other common uh, ailment, it would be almost impossible to determine that, to separate the contribution of the GMO from all of the other factors that are contributing to cancer. So it's really, that's why the food safety laws in our country are precautionary. Foods are suppo- like these were supposed to have been demonstrated safe before they came to market. And the law has been broken by the FDA, and these foods have been on allowed on the market in our country without the requirement of one iota of testing. We take off from Starksboro. Rich, good morning. Good morning, Mark, and good morning to your guest. Um, thank you so much for doing all this uh, all this work that you've undertaken. Um, the question I have is, uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, about what the outcome was of the lawsuit. The outcome, the big outcome was that we forced the FDA to divulge its files, and that showed they were lying. It showed that there was not a consensus within the scientific community, not even within the FDA. And by the way, the judge uh, acknowledged that as of the date we filed the lawsuit in 1998, we had shown that there was significant disagreement within the scientific community about the safety of genetically engineered foods, which essentially meant at that point they were on the market illegally. But she did something very, (laughs) very interesting. She said, actually, though, the issue is not whether they're on the market legally now. The only issue as a matter of federal administrative procedure law is the technical issue of whether in May of 1992, when the FDA released its policy, the FDA administrators had... Uh, sufficient reasonable grounds to presume that these foods were safe. So she said, I have to ignore all of the information about scientific disagreement you brought in in your lawsuit, uh, and we only go back to what was in the FDA's files as of May of 1992. That's the only relevant evidence. Well, of course, the files had several memos from the FDA's own scientists saying that these foods can't be presumed safe. How did she deal with that? She said, well, basically, the FDA administrators uh, don't have to listen to any of that, which is quite strange. She basically said they have the right to presume whatever they want to presume. It's a very bizarre opinion. There's an entire chapter in my book analyzing it and showing how bizarre it is and how flawed it is. So, But ultimately, what the judge said was she didn't determine that that genetically engineered foods are safe. Uh, or even that the law was not being violated as of 1998. All she said was the FDA administrators uh, had a reason, a rational basis to presume they were safe in May of 1992. Is there? And she didn't look at anything that happened thereafter. Yeah, I mean you, the the chapter on the 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 the, uh, the judge in this case. I mean it was kind of bizarre what some of her rulings were. Is there current testing that's being done by by the FDA or anybody for that matter? Well, well the FDA doesn't do tests, so it will. And as I said, the FDA is not even looking at the results of tests in our country. Now the industry is has done tests because they had to uh, for the uh, requirements of. Canada and the European Union and other countries, but as the book demonstrates, those tests are actually quite superficial, and they do not meet up to the standards of testing that are required by U.S. law in this situation, and that the FDA should be imposing. But uh, these tests, as I said, a large number of these tests have actually returned troubling results, uh, and when independent experts have reviewed it, they've they've concluded that. Plus. <clears throat> A substantial uh, number of the independently conducted tests have shown deleterious harm to the uh, deleterious results to the lab animals who are eating the foods. So it's clear 
that the testing to date has not demonstrated the safety of genetically engineered foods and has instead cast serious doubt on their safety. You say, and I'm a little confused here, you say that the FDA doesn't do directly do tests, but they have no. scientists on staff. What do those scientists do? Well, the scientists are there to review the results of any tests that the industry submits, but the FDA is not asking for the industry to submit any tests. They're, I think they're afraid of what would be found. So that's, that's the interesting thing. The FDA goes through a voluntary consultation program with the uh, industry. And by the way, there's a memo that I discovered in the file showing that they were going to uh, devise this kind of voluntary consultation uh, to make it seem that there was some uh, that the industry was not being given full reign to regulate themselves, but clearly they are, because the FDA has admitted that that voluntary review process is not a scientific evaluation. So the FDA basically only reviews what the industry uh, chooses to give it, and the industry is not giving it uh, detailed test data. Uh, and uh, so the and the industry and the FDA is essentially rubber stamping whatever it is told. Uh, whatever it's given. It's just smoke and mirrors to make it appear that some actual regulation is going on. But in our lawsuit, the FDA admitted in court that it is not regulating GMOs and not imposing one single requirement on the biotech industry. And the judge agreed that it is not, that it is not regulating the industry in any way. Is um is there any as you know uh, Vermont has passed now this labeling law that's sort of in in the process of being the regulations are actually being written uh, as we speak it's not going to go into effect for a little bit longer is this is there any effectiveness is there any is it effective to have a labeling law well it would be much better than if there were not as you may know Mark there's currently strong move afoot in Congress to pass a bill that would nullify Vermont's law and basically prevent any Vermont or any other state from requiring labeling and basically uh, uh, <laughs> uh, rubber stamping, giving the okay to, to the flimsy system that the FDA has now. In fact, the law as it stands now, my understanding is, the proposed bill, it, it would even prevent... Uh, manufacturers from labeling their foods GMO-free. They'd stop that as well. So it's really an amazing law. That's why uh, many people are dubbing it the Monsanto Protection Act. But that uh, has come out of committee. It, uh, it's headed for a vote on the floor of the House. Uh, people think it's likely to pass the House. It's not clear what would happen in the Senate. But So Vermont's law is in jeopardy at the federal level right now. Mm-hmm. But is there a value in having these labeling laws? Well, yes, uh, it's better than what we have. But as my book makes the strong point, actually labeling GMOs is not the proper remedy at this point. If you really want to look at the law, what, what the law and science requires, these foods should be taken off the market. They're on the market illegally. So if a, if a food is on the market illegally, you don't label it, you remove it. Labeling is the proper remedy for foods that are on the market legally. Now, the Vermont legislators weren't aware of this fact, uh, and uh, I don't think they, you know, they were doing the best they felt they could do. And as I said, labeling is certainly better than the current situation where there's not labeling. But I can't actually condone uh, recommend labeling because I know too much. I know these foods are on the market illegally. By the way, if that new law goes through, they won't be on the market illegally anymore. Uh, uh, the FDA, they'll be exempted from the requirements of the federal food safety laws. So that would be also a major problem. But currently, as we speak, they are on the market illegally, and therefore they should, be rem should have been removed from the market, should have never come to market in the first place. But I commend what the of Vermont legislature did. It was very bold. It was as much as they could do. They couldn't take these foods off the market. And they, uh, they didn't put a trigger on it. They just said, you know, we're going ahead. And as of July 1st, uh, 2016, these foods have to be labeled in Vermont. So I applaud what the Vermont legislators did. I think it, it's very strong and uh, it sets a really good example for the other states. Unfortunately, it may be nullified soon at the federal level. 
From what you know, we're talking with Stephen Drucker. He's the author of Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Our Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public. From what you know, from what you've read, from what you've seen within the FDA, would you be comfortable saying that these are unsafe products to eat? I would say that they have not been demonstrated safe and that the process of genetic engineering has been shown to uh, pose risks that are beyond the risks uh, posed by conventionally produced foods and therefore that they should be presumed unsafe until demonstrated safe and that's what our law requires anyway each of these foods is supposed to be presumed unsafe until demonstrated safe i would say not only is that sound from the standpoint of law that's sound from the standpoint of, of science and my book demonstrates that and that no genetically engineered food should be considered safe unless and until it has been demonstrated safe through rigorous testing the likes of which has not yet been applied to any of the foods what do you think is the most potential, the worst case scenario for human consumption of this? What, what should people worry about most? Well, uh, these foods could be creating any number of problems, uh, digestive problems. They could be creating uh, cancer. Uh, it, it's difficult to know exactly what. We, it's clear from the tests done on laboratory animals that a whole range of problematic results could be happening. In fact, some of the most troubling are the long-term tests that were done independently uh, have shown uh, damage and, and, and actually analysis of longer-term tests done by the industry, by independent experts, have shown uh, problems to the kidneys and to livers. Well, those are the major uh, organs that are involved in trying to filter out toxic uh, substances. So if they're, if they're showing problems, experts have said that, that could indicate that there are toxins in these foods, and that's why there are problems being noted in kidneys and, uh, and livers in some of these tests. And uh, it's difficult to know for sure what could be happening. But what we want to do is take a precautionary approach, which is what our food safety laws mandate and have since 1958. Every one of these foods should have been subjected to rigorous long-term testing, and every one of them should have been demonstrated safe before it was allowed to come into our food supply. But Americans have been consuming these foods in large quantities since 1996, generally without even their knowledge. Let me take a call from Hyde Park. Ken, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, where to start? First of all, my wife is one of those scientists who you claim has been corrupted and suborned and just sold out to the industry. I would certainly love to hear more than casual uh, evidence that that has happened. Many of our friends are some of the leaders who developed the underlying technologies for this. Believe me, they have a they haven't been uh, they haven't sold out, and b they haven't uh, stopped eating genetically modified foods. I guess they must be really dumb. Two. Are peanuts safe under your terms, or should peanuts be taken off the market? Are shrimp safe, or should they be taken off the market? All these, there are many foods out there that have been shown in scientific study, non-genetically modified foods out there, that have been shown in epidemiological studies to be unsafe to certain parts of the population. Are you saying that all those foods should be taken off the market, so that it should be illegal to buy much of the seafood? No, I'm, I'm not saying that, because in the case of seafood, we, as you said, I mean, I'm going by what you said, we know you said it was just unsafe for certain parts of the population. So people know if they're buying shrimp or if, if something is... Uh, I, I'm sorry, that's not they can They can exercise their own, uh, you know, their own uh, judgment and avoid it if they need to. Let me get back to your first point. I didn't say every scientist who... Uh, who has supported GMOs, has sold out to the industry. In fact, my book says that there are several that, that truly believe that this is a good thing. Uh, but I don't know if you've read my book yet, but I go into very great detail. I give you the kinds of answers that you're asking for in the book. We don't really have time to go into it now, but my book has been praised by many scientists who I'm sure is well-credentialed as your wife. So, you know, we can resolve scientific issues based on evidence. And my book is 431 pages 
of main text with about 85 pages of, of endnotes, and the scientists who've reviewed it have praised it for being very thoroughly documented and for, you know, being very incisive. And so, uh, so look, I invite okay. your wife to read it and then dialogue with me. Uh, if anything's wrong, I'll so, wait, 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 let's, let's go back. So you're saying that if we proved that genetically modified foods were only unsafe for a subset of the population, you would favor putting them on the market? Well, if that was proved, but that certainly hasn't been proved. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, what's unsafe? I, I'm sorry, excuse me, just repeat that question. If research proved that some genetically modified foods were unsafe for certain parts of the population, you would say it would be okay to put them on the market? No, because in the case of GMOs, they're in a special category according to law. They contain additives that do not have a safe history of use before 1958, and therefore they are presumed unsafe until demonstrated safe. Shrimp and any other product are not in that, if they haven't been genetically modified. But they've all been genetically modified. Additives are in a different category, legally and I would say scientifically. So we have to treat, each of these things has to be examined separately. And genetically engineered foods are in a different category. There is good reason to believe that every one of them entails a unique set of risks. And uh, each one okay. of them, by law, and okay. according uh, to some science, should be demonstrated safe before it's marketed. That has not happened right now. Do, do you understand that part of the process of evolution is that everything is being genetically modified? On an ongoing basis being done. Excuse me. What's going on in, in evolution, and my book goes into this in great detail, is very different than the kinds of very radical alterations that are being made through biotechnology today. There's a very big difference. In fact, Nobel laureate biologist George Wald, he was a professor at Harvard, yeah, he stated I'm... that genetic engineering represents the biggest break in nature that has occurred in human history, that it should, its intervention should not be confused with any other intervention human beings have made in the natural order, let alone what's going on within the natural order. It is, it is acceptable to take uh, seed stock and expose it to nuclear radiation in order to create genetic modifications. That does not constitute genetic uh, engineered changes. That's not all competent DNA technology. It's a different technique. My book goes into the, <laughs> but, but the process is, differences but the result, between the risks. Excuse but the result of the genomic level is the same. That. According to the National Academy of Sciences' own analyses, genetic engineering, if you actually look at their chart and, as, and analyze it, as I've done in Chapter 9 of my book, it, it shows that genetic engineering entails a greater risk of unintended uh, consequences than does radiation breeding. But, by the way, radiation shouldn't be on the market either. That entails unusual risks. Its foods have never been demonstrated safe. And it's very, I think it's uh, risky that they're on the market. But that's a different issue. They, that's not recombinant DNA technology. It has its own set of risks. Thanks for your uh, call, Ken. Uh, so um, tell me, what, what are you expecting the public is going to, how, how are they going to react to this? Is there anything the public can do about this? Or is this pretty much a done deal? Well, I think certainly uh, the public can play a major role by getting educated, understanding that they've been lied to by the government, especially the FDA, the agency that's supposed to be going to bat for them and protecting the food supply. And uh, if people, if enough people raise their voices, then there can be major changes. So the public can play a major role. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Good luck in your efforts. Thank you so much, Mark. I enjoyed being on your program. Stephen Drucker is the author of Alter Genes, Twisted Truth, How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Our Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public. A moment of your time for our friends at Green Mountain Access. If you're looking for an outstanding local Internet service provider, make it our friends at gmavt.net. You can call them toll-free today at one 321 
and on the web at gmavt.net. They're a division of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom, and you can uh, speak with them if you happen to be in their service area about bundling their services together into one handy-dandy affordable package. Again, you can reach them today at one 321 815 and on the web at gmavt.net. We'll take a short break. We'll be back right after these important announcements. The Big Dog Daddy mid-year blowout sale is on at Lamoille Valley Ford. Hi, I'm Dan Keene, owner of Lamoille Valley. Through July 31st, anyone who purchases or leases any new car or SUV in stock at Lamoille Valley Ford can take a $1,000 upfront discount. This is over and above huge Ford rebates and low-rate financing to qualified buyers on nearly every model we sell. Better yet, all truck buyers Listen to this. Lamoille Valley Ford will triple your upfront discount to $3,000 off any new F-Series truck in stock, including the new F-150. Right now, our lot is jam-packed with Ford Energies, Fusions, Escapes, Explorers, and hands down, the largest selection of F-Series trucks we've ever had, and we're making deals. And folks, I've instructed my entire team that whether it takes a bigger discount, more for your trade, or a lower monthly payment to pull out all the stops and show you that at Lamoille Valley Ford, we know price matters. Drive Route 14, 50, or 16 to Hardwick during the Big Dog Daddy mid-year blowout sale happening now at Lamoille Valley Ford. It's no secret Mahiran Supermarket is a great place to shop. I'm Tom Mahiran. For over seven decades, Mahiran has been catering to the needs of the Mad River Valley and beyond. We have custom-cut meats, fresh produce and seafood, regular and organic grocery, locally produced foods galore topped off by an extraordinary wine and beer department and a state liquor agency. Shop me here in Supermarket, Village Square Shopping Center, Waitsfield. Special announcement. Wendell's Furniture is Vermont's largest furniture store, so we're having Vermont's largest furniture sale. It's a $4 million inventory reduction event. We recently underwent major renovations and acquired a surplus of unsold top quality inventory. We must make room immediately. $4 million worth of brand name home furnishings and handmade oriental rugs have been drastically discounted for immediate sales store wide. Everything must go. Up to 60% off top quality home furnishings. Up to 70% off hand made oriental rugs now is the time to buy living rooms bedrooms dining rooms dinettes sectionals recliners tv stands mattresses rugs accessories and more are all reduced for quick sale nothing held back it's a complete wall-to-wall sell-off hi folks it's wendell don't miss this incredible opportunity to own the furniture you've always wanted during our massive inventory reduction event going on now at wendell's furniture in colchester and at the vermont bed store 4050 willison road south burlington get details at wendellsfurniture.com Hi, this is Dr. Katie Marvin at Stowe Family Practice, where we care for people of all ages, from babies to seniors. With lab, x-ray, and a nutritionist on site, we may save you a trip to the emergency room or specialist. We help you prevent illness, do pediatric, sports, and skin exams, use an online patient portal, and welcome walk-in patients Monday through Saturday with injuries like cuts or broken bones. Call Stowe Family Practice, 253-4853. One doctor for your whole family. Hi, this is Kathy. This is Kate. And this is Larry from the family-owned Stowe Street Emporium in Waterbury. At the Emporium, it is time to spring into summer and jump into store savings with our exciting outdoor-indoor summer sale. Yes, it's our big annual event where everything in the store is 20% off, including savings up to 70% at our sidewalk tent sale. Save on in-store items from cards, Vermont products, wall art and clocks, home decor, rugs, wind chimes, kitchenware, candles, baby gifts, women's and men's clothing, jewelry, body care, and those unique and unusual items that the Emporium is known for. It's been two years since we bought the Emporium, and we want to thank all of our loyal customers with the tradition of this blowout event that happens only once a year, so don't miss out on the savings and the fun. The sale will run Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, July 16th to July 19th from 9.30 till 5.30, Sunday 11 to 3. We will be waiting for you at 23 Stowe Street in historic downtown Waterbury. Vermonters agree. Every child deserves a strong start. But how do we help them succeed? 80% of the brain develops by age 3 and 90% by age 5. So, for our youngest children, learning starts day one. Through reading, singing, talking, and playing, we help them build the skills they need to succeed. In school, in relationships, in life. Join the statewide conversation about the importance of the first years at letsgrowkids.org. Yeah, I want a cup of coffee, but I don't want a jean. 
Thanks, John. Uh, Stephen Drucker was our guest. He's the author of Alter Genes, Twisted Truth, How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Our Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public. Wow, there's a three hitter for you. All right, uh, we go to the phone, and let's give a nice warm radio, uh, or uh, we'll do that in a moment here. We're going to, uh, let me first uh, remind you about one of our great sponsors on the program. Our uh, friends at Jet Service Envelope would love to hear from you today. You can reach them at 3 or uh, uh, at uh, 229 That's 229 You'll also find their presence on the World Wide Web at Jet Service Envelope. They are a uh, great company with, uh, they've just been recently expanding their services. They can do everything now from publish a memoir for you to a nice uh, trifold brochure and everything else in between. Again, give them a call at 229-9335 and on the web at jetservice-envelope.com. Again, the name is Stephen Drucker's book. Uh, for those of you that were wondering, Alter Genes, Twisted Truth, talking about genetically modified food. All right, we go to the phone. Let's give a nice warm radio from uh, welcome this morning to the uh, commissioner of the Department of Environmental Conservation. Dave Mears is joining us. Uh, commissioner, thank you very much for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Mark. So you uh, are announcing, uh, making a big announcement that you're leaving state government. What's, what's going on with that? Well, I was given an opportunity to go back to my old gate teaching law at Vermont Law School and decided I just couldn't turn that up the best environmental law program in the country. So I decided to, to take it. Uh, why now? Why, why the timing now? Well, it just happened to be that the position came open now. And uh, law professor jobs don't come along very often. So I took it. I, in all honesty, I, I would have liked to have stayed throughout the, the remainder of the Shumlin administration. But um, this, like I said, the, the chance came along. So I decided to jump at it. So this is re- a return for you. Yes. Uh, so tell us, what did you do there before, and what are you going to be doing there now? Well, I, the, I can't, I, well, my job was to be a teacher of environmental law, and the, one of the ways in which Vermont Law School does that is through experiential programs. And uh, what I did was run, and we'll go back to doing the same thing, of running an environmental law clinic where the law students are like the, the associate attorneys, and I'm the senior partner, and so helping the law students learn how to engage in the using the court system to solve environmental problems by actually practicing law. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, um, uh, we don't want to bury you quite yet, but maybe we could talk about some of your accomplishments. So what, what, do, what do you feel that you were successful in doing in your tenure? Well, there's, there's been a few policy initiatives that have been really successful. We've, we've been able to launch a, the universal recycling program and, and getting people to you know, recycle more and make, make a composting and those kinds of opportunities available, you know, all Vermonters. We, I feel hugely proud of the work that our department did on the clean water law that just passed the legislature. And I'm, I'm also particularly proud of the fact that the, the department, this isn't all that sexy to talk about, but the department when I arrived was some of the systems and the, the morale in the department were, had been neglected, and I feel good. Right now, the department's as strong as it's ever been. It's got a great group of professionals, and they've proven that when, when given the right support and tools, they can accomplish great things. The, um, the, the water bill, there, there's been some question about how, how effective and strong it's going to be. So tell me what you think about that. I think it's the best single, most significant single step forward that the state has made in many decades. We've, we've known for a while that the biggest the most significant unaddressed source of water pollution is the polluted stormwater runoff that runs off of our farm fields, our parking lots, and and those kinds of, of issues. And what this law did was, for the first time, really strongly invested in both the Agency of Agriculture and in, in the Agency of Natural Resources, the kind of resources, authority, and responsibility to really tackle that. And so I, I'm confident it won't, won't necessarily be the ultimate penultimate solution but i'm also confident it's the biggest single step forward we could have and should be taking mm-hmm. tell me about the experience of being in state government as opposed to being at the law school what was that experience or what has been that experience been like well i mean it's 
the most exciting part of being about being state government and at the level that I've been at has been the opportunity to engage with senior leadership across the state in in so many different ways. And I mean, you know, and I mean leadership, not just elected officials, but as you know, I mean, you, you have all these folks on your shows daily that, that Vermonters are in, totally and completely engaged in this set of challenges of how we do a better job of protecting the environment. And there's so many amazing people that I've had the chance to work with. And I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss being able to travel the state and, and work with folks to solve environmental problems. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll find other ways to do that. The, uh, I mean, it seems as though the loss for us is that you're now knowledgeable about things like the water quality law. And one of the important things is going to be the implementation of this. So how do, how do we not interpret this as that we've, you know, suffered a loss here? It's, well, uh, one of the main things that I've spent time doing over the, my tenure and the job is to try to build the systems and the people and the capacity to implement this law. We didn't, we didn't implement this law and the governor didn't sign it. Um, with a, you know, a, it's not a symbolic law. It's, it's built on a solid foundation framework of, of people and programs and relationships across all the various sectors. And so there's, we have a great team in the department and, and this, the sad truth is I'm going to leave and <laughs> there'll probably be barely a ripple in terms of how people experience the, the work of the department. I, I feel like the thing that I added was, was a sense of, you know, drive and, and motivation to help get some of these things across the, the finish line. But I have no, no doubts that the department's going to continue the good work. What, what's your timeline here? I, my last day for the state will be August 7th, and then I'll, I'll start teaching for the fall semester at the law school. Okay, so there's no connection between you leaving and all these toxic algae blooms appearing in the Burlington Bay. <laughs> no, no, that sadly is a result of the really heavy rainfall we've had over the month of June. And combined now with, you know, a series of warm days and, you know, w- weather conditions that have just been really conducive. I'm afraid we're, we're in for a, a long, hard season of uh, blooms this year. Would you have taken this move if the governor had said he was going to run again? Yes, I would have. Uh, it's just a... Uh, you know, I feel like I've accomplished a lot of the, the major things that I wanted to do. And like I said, law professor jobs just don't come along that often. And it really has been my, my life passion to be able to work with law students and, and help train and, and build the next generation of problem solvers. Thank you for your time this morning, Dave. I appreciate it very much. Good luck in your efforts. Thank you, Mark. Take care. David Mears is the commissioner of the Department of Environmental Conservation. Uh, 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 breaking some news here this morning that he's going to be leaving his post as of the 7th of August as uh, the commissioner of the Department of Environmental Conservation. Huh. All right. Well, uh, I guess uh, 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 nobody is uh, unreplaceable, but uh, what a great loss, uh, losing him from state government in in IMHO, in my humble opinion. All right, that's going to wrap things up for hour number one. We'll be back in just a few moments here. We'll check in with our White House crew to begin hour number two. Then we're going to talk with the biographer of Stalin's daughter. That'll be coming your way at about 10.15 this morning. We'll take your phone calls as well. Keep your dial right here. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush 96.5 in Barrie and Montpelier. You'll find us at 101.9 in the Northeast Kingdom and the flagship AM 550 WDEV Waterbury Montpelier. News is coming your way next.